0: Let's pray. Father, we are thankful tonight for so many who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness, after the truth. And we know that your word is truth. And tonight we read about the living truth, truth incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ and how he, with truth, confronted those who weren't interested in it or who pretended to be. And how he handled them. And Lord, you're going to give us insight into so many areas. And for many of us, we've read these things before. But each time we do, it's like, it's like fresh water to us, Lord. It's a reminder of things that we have forgotten about. And we need to be reminded. And I am grateful, Lord, for a group of people who love you and love The word so much that they would come, bring their Bibles, and sit and be fed. Lord, your word says that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And we pray, Lord, tonight that you would reward each one who has come to seek you, that they would not go away empty. And we trust you in that. And commit this evening to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We just sang a song that David wrote. Isn't it great to sing a song that's several thousand years old? That David wrote, as he sang to the Lord, One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I would inquire in his temple. Jesus was also in the temple of God in the chapters that we are reading. And the temple was filled with worshipers who, like David, had come to seek the Lord. Thousands of people from all over. But not all of them had come to seek the Lord. Some of them had come with the wrong motivation. And they confront Jesus in the temple. They really weren't inquiring of Jesus, inquiring of the Lord, for any other reason except to trap him. And we covered that day of questioning last week in our study. After Jesus answers their questions and asks them a couple of questions, Jesus now makes his way through the crowds from Solomon's porch through the court of the Gentiles up several steps, a series of steps that lead through a gate called the Gate Beautiful, where in the book of Acts a lame man who was lame from his birth was placed every day and was healed by Peter and John. As he makes his way up those steps. And that beautiful Corinthian bronze gate is open. He would then have entered into a court called the Court of the Women. Now, the Court of the Women was a huge court. It was capable, even though there were colonnades all the way around it, it was capable of holding about 15,000 worshipers within just that court. That was not the largest court. The court of the Gentiles outside that surrounded that was the larger court. But as he would go through that court, along the sides where the columns were in the court of the women were 13 trumpet-shaped boxes. The sacrifice had already ended in the afternoon. And after the sacrifice ended, people would sometimes sort of retire to this court of the women And they would put offerings in these boxes, sort of like ancient agape boxes, but much more ornate. They were not really uh, just made out of wood like this. They were shaped beautifully. They were very ornate. And they were to give private offerings, private sacrifices for the poor righteous of Jerusalem. It was to be done in secret. In fact, there were a couple of chambers that were in this section called the chambers of the silent, where people would go and in quiet they would give. But there were others who would give in a very ostentatious kind of a format. They wanted to be seen by men. Now, Jesus goes up these steps, goes through the gate, and was just noticing the people in their worship, watching people as they worship. Are you conscious of the fact that God watches your worship? He watches what you do and why you do it. Think of Jesus just in the corner, you know, all the people are coming, some uh, quietly, some not so quietly, and there's Jesus in the corner just scoping them out. If they only knew who it was that was looking at them and discerning their worship, they probably would have done it differently. Then he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Oh, maybe a quarter of a cent worth by our standards, half of a cent by inflation maybe. So he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these, out of their abundance." have put in offerings for God, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all of her livelihood that she had. Two mites was, according to Jewish tradition, the very least that you could offer God when you gave a financial sacrifice. Now, Jesus said that's all she had left. That was all of her livelihood. The Greek word is bios, or we get the term biosphere or biology. It means physical life. That's all that she had to sustain herself that day. Two mites, the least required by the law. But Jesus noticed the various uh, ways that people were putting into the treasury, and this woman put in two mites, and she said, this widow has put in more than all. Interesting perspective on giving. I don't want to miss it. We often think of gifts in in terms of portion, and often churches are interested in your portion. Well, how much are you going to pledge this year? How much will you pledge in our building fund? God is more interested in proportion than he is in portion. In fact, I don't think God really cares about the portion, but it's the proportion. She put in more than all, and she put in the very least amount, quarter of a cent. But she put in in proportion to everyone else what they were making and what they they put in. Jesus said that her sacrifice was much greater. If you think of it, what does God need? When you give God money, let's say, I'm going to give God a thousand dollars. You think God goes, oh man, thanks. I have needed it for so long, you don't know what a blessing this is that you bailed me out. God isn't broke. And we should understand that our giving to God is our privilege. It's our privilege. We get to cooperate, and I think in eternity we will get the blessing. God isn't broke. Yet, I have heard God portrayed as being in the poorhouse in dire straits. This ministry is God's ministry. This program is God's program. And you are God's people. And if you don't support God's program, we're going to have to go off the air. We're going to have to shut down our doors and, you know, poor God is broke. It's often portrayed. I for one look for areas that God is already blessing. Instead of looking for ways just to bail out God, I look for ministries that are flourishing, where God has poured out his blessing, and I seek to invest in the kingdom that I might get eternal dividends. If I see souls saved and lives changed, that's where I want to give. So God doesn't need anything, first of all. Secondly, it's always done in proportion to what we have. Um, Jesus taught how to give back in... uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. He said, when you do charitable deeds or you give alms, don't do it to be seen by men. Don't let your right hand even know what your left hand is doing. Do it in secret that your Father who sees in secret might reward you openly. That's how you give. You don't do it in an ostentatious way. Jesus was noticing how people were giving that day. He had already taught his disciples on how, how to give and how not to give. Don't do it in a way to attract attention to yourself, to be seen by men. I would say then that that pretty much rules out public pledges. How many tonight will give this much to the Lord's work? I think that pretty much rules out plaques that you put on buildings, donated by, to attract attention to the person who gave. It's to be done very discreetly, silently, not to attract attention. And then uh, Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 9 says that we should give in proportion to what we have. We shouldn't do it grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves, literally, a hilarious giver. If you cannot give to God hilariously, then hold on to it. If buying that taco after church is so much more important to you, then have the taco if you're going to give and think, oh man, I could have used that for so many good things and I wasted it on God's kingdom. (laughs) Keep it. We don't want it. God doesn't want it. Now, that principle of giving, doing it simply, doing it in proportion, I think should sort of trickle down into all of our lives in the way we worship. We should never worship in a way that Well, I'm going to worship in such a way that everyone will look at me now as I do this. They'll see me uh, displaying my righteousness before people. It should be done in a very simple way that your Father might reward you openly. Now, speaking of the proportion in verse 4, Jesus said, For all these, out of their abundance, have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all the livelihood that she had. Simply, and she gave all. And it was done. You know, I hate hype. I know you know that. I hate, I don't like hype and I especially, I'm just sick of the hype of money on in ministries. It turns me off. It has always turned me off. And when we started this fellowship and the board of directors got together and said, okay how are we going to take an offering we decided to do it with a Folgers coffee can that's what we had back then i don't have a problem with taking a formal offering i really don't but we just decided after just looking around the city and seeing that so many evangelistic crusades and campaigns sort of you know this is the crossroads of two major freeways and everybody and their brother comes and has a crusade and a ministry and oftentimes you know they soak people for money and they make a big deal out of it. We just thought, let's just be a little bit different. Let's trust God, let's make giving available to people, but let's just do it really low-key. So we started with a couple, one Folgers coffee can at our Bible study. Then we grew and we needed to have two Folgers coffee cans, one at each side of the Bible study room so that people wouldn't have to stand and lie. We wanted to make it simple so it wouldn't be a big deal. And so we carried the concept over. I was eating lunch with a couple last week. They're from out of state and they moved here a few years and they've been coming to the fellowship. And they said, one of the things that continually impresses us is the fact that you don't take a formal offering. And he said, i got to tell you, I tell my friends this back in Texas and they can't believe it. What do you mean? How do they survive without taking an offering and having pledges and making a big deal out of it? But God is faithful. And it ought to be done simply. And uh, because we hate the hype, we let people know about it, but we just, you know, it's between you and God. Now, when we started renovating the building, they admitted to me. They said, you know, she sat down, she said, okay, they're talking about, you know, the parking lot, a new building. Here it comes. You know, they've waited for months, and here comes the push now for the money. And she just sat there waiting as I announced that we're going to build. She said, I was surprised. You never, you never made any, you never talked about pledging or a special fund or whatever. Well, that's the way it's going to continue to be. Because God is more (laughs) concerned about your soul than about your pocketbook. Now, there is a correlation. If a person is committed to God, he's going to want to give. But you know what? I don't need to know about that. And I, I don't care what you give. It's between you and God, and I hope that you can give hilariously. That's the Greek word, give hilariously. Oh, God, it's yours, (laughs) what a hoot, all right, for your kingdom. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He said, As for these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? And what sign will there be that these are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. And he said, Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Now, Jesus speaks about the future and about his coming. Ever since time began, people have wanted to know the future. And there have arisen people to satisfy the thirst to know the future prognosticators, prophets, people who predict the future, fortune tellers, fortune cookies, psychic hotlines late at night. We'll tell you the future for $800. But what made Israel unique is that God raised up prophets who had to fulfill a very strict criteria. They had to be accurate all the time, 100% accuracy. When they said, thus saith the Lord, oh, they better be sure that the Lord was thus saying. If he was not thus saying... God said, take the prophet who speaks falsely and stone him to death. And what made Israel unique is that God raised up people that he spoke through and spoke about future events. And that sort of carried Israel with those promises throughout their history. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks very plainly about his coming and the signs of the end of the age before he would come again. I personally love prophecy first of all, a third of all Scripture is prophetic. So I figure that if you don't like prophecy, you're going to have to rip out about a third of the pages of your Bible. And yet there are people who say, oh, why study prophecy? I mean, you talk about the future. You know, we should just really be concerned about now, social action now, what we can do now. And they say, there's no practical value for prophecy. I would beg to differ with you. I think a good study in prophecy is one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself spiritually. First of all, it will clean up your lifestyle. Everyone who has this hope, said John, the hope of the coming of Christ, purifies himself even as he is pure. Now, think about it. You are living on borrowed time. Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. And when you study prophecy and you see that you are living on borrowed time, you're ready. You live in anticipation. The second benefit I see in studying prophecy is not only cleanness of lifestyle, but comfort in times of sorrow, comfort in times of sorrow. Jesus told his disciples, "'Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also." He said, "'Comfort one another with these things.' There's nothing more comforting to me than knowing that not only will Jesus come back, but when he comes back and all of the saints are gathered together in heaven, I will be with those who have gone before." This week we've had a few tragedies in the church, people who have died suddenly, unexpectedly. One last week, last Sunday, another just the other day. He was up fishing uh, by the San Juan River, I saw him every Sunday night. He was struck by lightning and killed instantly, suddenly taken to heaven. What a shock, what a tragedy, what a sorrow. And yet in all of that sorrow it is mixed with hope. And I've sat or I've stood in front of a group of people like this at a funeral and not all of them had the faces that you have right now, faces of hope. Faces of joy. I stared into some pretty empty faces at funerals. Blank stares. They have no clue. They are filled with sorrow and they have no hope mixed with it. But you can almost look over a crowd at a funeral and see those who are believers. They're sorrowing. They're weeping. But in their tears is that spark of hope the nodding of the head, the anticipation that one day there will be a reunion in eternity. And when I study prophecy and I see all that God has in store for us, I was talking a little bit about it, the Scripture says so much about it. I study prophecy, I get hopeful. And I tell you what, we need hope these days. We live in a pretty hopeless society. And more and more people are understanding that there's no hope in any program of any politician, and I'm tired of hearing the promises of politicians. I've grown weary and sick of it. They can't produce. They, They don't have the power to do it. Woe to the one who puts his trust in the arm of flesh. And so the more I live, the more I hope in his coming. The third benefit I see in studying prophecy is conviction for service. You know, I know that we're living on borrowed time. I know that Jesus could come back at any moment. And you know what? That doesn't make me slothful or sloppy in living. It makes me want to lead as many people as I can to Christ before that time comes. I believe that we're at a moment in history where Christ could rapture his church at any moment. We're living on borrowed time. We're in that age of grace. Knowing that, brings cleanness of living, comfort in sorrow, and conviction in service, wanting to serve the Lord with all my heart. Well, let's get into some of these things. Um, First of all, the temple in verse 5, they were in the temple and some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. If you ever get to go to Israel with us, we'll show you what's left. (laughs) The temple isn't there anymore, but it was a magnificent structure. There were stones. It's hard to imagine this, but there are a couple of stones that are over a hundred tons. There is one stone that is found, and you can walk it out. It's over 40 feet long, that measures about, uh, that weighs about. They figure they haven't picked it up. It's in the wall, but they figure by measuring its dimension that it weighs 400 tons. Can you imagine quarrying that and moving that and putting it in place? Those giant cranes that you see lift up weights, the capacity is usually about five tons, 400 tons. And so these stones, some 47 feet long, Josephus said, and, and they're still there today, you can see them, cause people to just drop their jaw. Look at this place. It took 47 years to build. Now, the first temple was built by Solomon and it was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. Zerubbabel and Ezra sought to rebuild it and uh, they did okay. Herod came along and made this huge structure. The temple complex was about 40 acres. 40 acres. Uh, all of the property that we have here. Uh, from the corner all the way over, all the way back to the ditch. I don't know if you've ever gone back that far. It's way past the road. We're on about 20 acres, 18 point some acres. 40 acres, flat stone, and then several courts until you got to the temple itself. It was a magnificent structure. As I said, it took about 46, 47 years uh, to build it. It really was never completed. And so people were marveling at it. Jesus makes a prediction that it would be utterly destroyed. The days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. If you stand in the Kidron Valley and you're looking uh, west, you're standing in the east, you're looking west, if you're down at the bottom, the mountain rises and then the stones are piled up upon each other. From the bottom. To the top, the pinnacle of the Temple Mount. The pinnacle was 158 feet high. Now, you know, imagine that. You, this peak of this ceiling is about 34, 35 feet high. 158 feet high. And then was that flat area. And then 90 feet above that, the temple itself stood, the, the Holy of Holies stood 90 feet high. Magnificent structure. Yet, Jesus is predicting its fall that occurred about 40 years later in 70 AD when Titus and the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem. There were colonnades, porches. One was Solomon's porch, there were several others where people would meet. And there were columns of pure white marble that stood up. And today, you can stand and look down into a hole and see some of those marble pillars some of them intact, where they had fallen 2,000 years ago and then were covered up and were just recently uncovered, you can see the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus predicted. Josephus said that the destruction of Jerusalem was so utterly complete that if you were to visit it after the destruction, you would not believe that anybody lived in it or that a temple ever stood on the Temple Mount. In fact, folks, they're still debating today where the temple stood. Nobody knows. There's some 80 different conjectures as to where the temple stood. It was wiped out totally. The temple mount is still there, but the temple structure was completely wiped out, as Jesus predicted. So, you know, the disciples go, wow, look at these stones, and people go, look at these adornments. And Jesus said, ah, oh, it's, 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 it's going to get wasted. It's going to be wiped out. Now, just a word about buildings in particular. Buildings are fine in so much as they serve a purpose. Church buildings are fine in so much as they serve a purpose. In and of themselves, they're not important. A church building is like a lunch sack. The sack isn't important. The lunch is. Oh, look at this cool lunch sack. Isn't this awesome? Ooh, I love the brown paper, man. That's really awesome. Look at it. What is really important is the lunch, the feeding that takes place. And so it is with the church. You should be fed the Scriptures, the Word of God. That's really the emphasis, not the lunch sack. So they serve a purpose, but uh, they don't exist just for their beauty or for themselves. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, now he made an astonishing predicament when, uh, that the temple would be overthrown. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? and what?" sign will there be when these things are about to take place?" The disciples were Jews. Being Jews, they had in their mind uh, a scenario. There was pretty much an established scenario of end time events, just like if you're a Christian, you have in your mind what you think is going to happen at the end of the age. The Jews, up to this point, had a standard eschatology or study of last things. Step number one or phase number one is that there would be a time of turmoil right before the Messiah comes. That there would be a churning so that there would be an expectation of his coming. There would be a time of turmoil. Secondly, a forerunner would come. Some prophet like Elijah would come. And be the forerunner of the Messiah. That's why they got all excited when John the Baptist came. and said, it's Elijah. He's come. Then the establishment of the kingdom was the third phase. The disciples, there was about six phases, but the disciples believed they were caught between phase number one and two or two and three. They didn't know exactly which, but they thought that Jesus had come into Jerusalem. He was going to make a big finale and set up his kingdom on the earth immediately. They were waiting for it. That's why they kept saying and arguing, Who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? And they thought, Look, he's going to set up his kingdom. We want to be, you know, right, at the right hand and left. Probably that's why Judas kept following him, albeit superficially, for so long. He thought, I want to be around for the fireworks. I want to be around when he knocks the Romans off their throne and sets up his kingdom. Judas never really believed, and he probably followed because he expected this immediate kingdom. And even though Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection, it didn't quite sink in. So they asked the question, when is it all going to take place? He said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass, but the end will not come yet. And he gives a series of signs that will happen before his coming. Now, if you were to compare this chapter with Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, and Revelation beginning in verse 6 to about verse, uh, chapter 6 to about chapter 18, chapter 19, that's where all this fits in. Most of the emphasis of this chapter, to get it set in your mind, is for the Jews. It is spoken to the Jews by a Jew about the Jewish nation. Yes, it has some application for us, but by and large it is, he's speaking about the tribulation period and how the end time events relate to Jerusalem and the Jewish nation. Signs that they can expect before he comes. And here's one of the signs. And and as you read through this, keep in mind that all these things have already happened. There's always been false messiahs. There's always been wars and rumors of wars and frightful signs and commotions. But in Matthew 24, there's an added clue. Jesus said they are like the birth pains of a woman. Paul and Peter said the same thing. That toward the end, although there has always been these kinds of activities, they will increase and intensify. That's what makes them unique. Take heed that you not be deceived. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they'll say, The time has drawn near. Now, Jesus, was a good shepherd. Good shepherds warn people of false prophets. Jesus warned his disciples of false prophets. Paul the apostle warned people of false prophets. In Acts chapter 20, he speaks to the Ephesian elders, and he said, Now I've warned you guys for several years now, and after my departure, savage wolves will come in and try to rip you guys off. And so Jesus warned them, and uh, the apostles warned as well. Many will come in my name. Now, there's always been false prophets. But did you know, in about the last 50, 60, 65 years, there's been about 1,500 people who have claimed to be the Messiah publicly, either by saying they are the second coming of Christ or they are the sent Messiah, the promised one, the predicted one. Most of them have appeared, not in Hollywood, but more so in Africa and in Asia and parts of the Middle East. Uh, there are several notable examples. Uh, we still see them coming. They um, uh, rally people around them and they say, I know exactly when he's coming, or I am he who is to come. Jesus said, therefore, do not go after them. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass, but the end will not come immediately." Now, there's always been war. In fact, it's estimated that only eight percent of recorded history has been a time of peace. That's not much. There's always been war, but we have seen an escalation in warlike activity in our century unlike any other century. In fact, there have been more victims of war in the twentieth century than all the victims of wars of all other centuries combined previously. There was a Russian study where a couple of people set out to figure out the uh, amount of conflict over history. And to give you an example, they said uh, in the 12th century uh, there were um, 2,678 recorded conflicts. In comparison to the first 25 years of the 20th century where there were 12,835 recorded conflicts just in the first 25 years of the 20th century. We've always had wars, we've always had commotions, but there is an increase in an intensity of these things. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I try to keep up with the uh, polls and what people are feeling and what people are thinking. Did you know that one of the highest causes of stress among young adults and teenagers is the possibility of nuclear war? Because people have stored weapons for a long time, nobody trusts each other anymore, nobody knows if uh, Iran, who is developing these weapons, is going to push a button sometime. There's that very real possibility that somebody could just decide to push a button and plunge the world into a conflict. And there's reason, I suppose, to get worried over these things. One ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, that is armed with the warhead of a hundred megatons, one 100-megaton warhead on one missile has more destructive power than all of the destructive power in World War II used by both sides. That's one missile. It is estimated that if one of these ICBMs exploded in Ohio, if you were to look at the blast, your eyes would be burned out up to 300 miles away. So bright would be the intensity of this explosion. And that area would be uninhabitable for centuries. That's one explosion. Jesus said, notice what he said, When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. And you're going to find out why. He's going to talk about that in just a minute. The end will not come immediately. Verse 11, there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilence. There will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Beginning in the 1970s, many scientists uh, said that we have entered the age of famine. War and famine go together, In particularly parts of Africa and the East, famine is very, very typical. And when the world sees more warfare, there's going to be more famine. It's estimated that a third of the world is well fed. That's you. Another third of the world just gets by, is poorly fed. The other third of the world is starving. Thirty people die per minute of starvation. Four hundred and sixty million people are on the brink of starvation, and it will increase. Um, Let me read to you out of the book of Revelation concerning the tribulation period. Uh, You can turn there if you'd like, Revelation chapter 6. I'm not going to read it all, but uh, it speaks about four horsemen. A false leader comes on the scene, the Antichrist. He brings war with him, and after that comes famine. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I saw the third living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wage. That's what a denarius is and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine." Speaking of the kind of prices during starvation times, it will take a whole day to buy a couple days' wage to buy a loaf or two of bread. Famine right on the heels of war. You are going to see famine increase, not decrease, unfortunately. And uh, if you do not receive Jesus Christ and you make it into the tribulation period, you're going to see a lot of famine, worldwide famine. You're going to see famine in the United States of America. Now why famine? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, First of all, increase in oil prices. The United States can afford it. But countries who are on the brink of starvation can't afford the fertilizer or the fuel to keep their machinery going. Secondly, there's a pollution factor, acid rain and others, uh, producing inferior quality of food. We know that there's much less nutritional value in foods grown today than thirty years ago. Wars is another reason. Another reason is population we are on this time bomb that is ticking away called population. Think of it. It's taken from the beginning of history to the year 1850 to produce one billion people on the earth. But it's taken only from 1850 to 1930 to produce two billion. And then from 1930 to 1960 to give us three billion. And 1960 to 1975 to bring us four billion. It's 15 years. And there is this shortening of time to produce more people. It exponentially increases. By the year 2000, they figure there will be over eight billion people on the earth. Now, think of the problems we have now. Add to that war, perhaps nuclear war, and you can see the problems that will occur toward the end, as Jesus predicted. fearful signs in the heaven. But before all these things, uh, verse 12, before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now, of course, this is religious persecution. Saul of Tarsus was a religious persecutor. Stephen himself was martyred by religious people. In the name of God. But Jesus speaks of persecution from the synagogue. In some of the ancient synagogues, there was a special room where you would be tried if you violated rabbinical law. And uh, if you were found guilty, there would be one rabbi that would read your crimes, um, another one that would hold the whip to strike you, to beat you with the uh, whip, uh, another one to record the lashes. And uh, there were even sometimes uh, beatings accompanied with songs of worship because they felt they were doing God's will. Jesus predicted that would happen. It did happen in the early church. It will happen and uh, continue toward the end of time, religious persecution. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Do you remember when Stephen was dying? Before he was dying and they asked him to give his testimony, it says they were not able to withstand the wisdom with which he spoke. He just blew them out of the water. They asked him questions and he recounted their history with great precision. And they just marvel. All they could do to shut him up, they couldn't argue with him, they couldn't win the argument is to, to kill him, to silence his testimony through stones. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will send some of you to your death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Did you know, you know, we talk a lot about the Holocaust, six million Jews killed. What a tragedy. But did you know that in the first 250 years of Christian history, over six million Christians were slaughtered by the persecutions, the pogroms of the Romans and religious groups? They were slaughtered. Diocletian, the Roman emperor, minted a coin saying that Rome has been restored. To its original worship of the Caesars, Christianity has been destroyed. There's a coin. If you can find it, it's a collector's item that Christianity had been banished. Of course, the church never was completely destroyed. They simply went underground in the catacombs only to emerge stronger. But they were persecuted by Diocletian and others. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. In your patience possess your souls. Now in the tribulation period. It will be a time of severe persecution. There will be 144,000 Jews who will be saved. They will be persecuted by the Antichrist. There will be two witnesses of the Jewish nation. I believe they will be Moses and Elijah come back from the dead. If you think that's goofy, uh, well, we've covered it in other tapes, I don't want to go over it again. But they will be strong witnesses. In fact, Listen to what it says. These two witnesses have power to call down fire from heaven, turn the water into blood, and all the same things Moses and Elijah were able to do. And they give a testimony to Jerusalem. And they are so hated that they are killed. Uh, When they have finished their testimony, uh, the beast has the power to destroy them, and they're killed. Their bodies lay in Jerusalem for a few days. And it says, All of the world all of the world will be able to see their bodies laying in Jerusalem. Isn't that an odd prediction? Isn't that an impossible prediction? Impossible to be fulfilled before the advent of satellite television? All the world at one moment able to see the same event. But a strange thing will happen that will also be a testimony to the world when all the cameras are on there and CNN is present and NBC and... Uh, Here we are reporting live from Jerusalem. These two men have been killed and they haven't been buried, and here their bodies are once again. Suddenly, on the third day, their bodies will come back to life, and the world will wonder as they are taken by God. But they'll leave a testimony. They will be hated by the world, they will be persecuted by the world, and God's people will continue to suffer it. But in, in your patience or endurance, possess your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all these things which are written may be fulfilled." This will, of course, take place. Uh, before Jesus comes back again. In fact, I think the primary reference here is to the destruction of Jerusalem, which he has just been talking about. You know, he's been asked a few questions. If you put all the accounts together, they're asking him, when will the temple be destroyed? Uh, When will you come back? And what will the signs be before your coming? That's really the questions they ask. And he's answering all these questions. But he tells them, he gives them a warning. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know its desolation is near, he says, flee to the mountains. Let me tell you a story I read about. I can't remember where I read it. I'll try to uh, chase it down because I know somebody you're going to ask me now, what page was that on? In what book was that? Where can I find it? But I did read that the Christians in 70 A.D. who lived in Jerusalem, based upon this text, when they knew that Titus had surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and by the way, he slaughtered 1,100,000 people. In Jerusalem and took about 97,000 of them captive. But when they heard that Titus had surrounded, they got together and they prayed. And it is said that somehow by the Spirit, no doubt a word of prophecy, they were instructed by God to leave the city through the east gate. The odd thing is the east gate was the other side of where Titus had come. He was attacking. He came to the east, but then he surrounded and came to the north. And that was the only gate that night that Titus left unguarded, and many of the Christians were able to escape and flee through the mountains of Judea. And many of them escaped the death and the persecution and spread the gospel in other parts of the country. These are the days of vengeance. All these things which are written will be fulfilled. Now that was simply a dress rehearsal to the final destruction. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, which has happened. There has been a dispersion throughout all the world since 70 A.D. Now listen to this. It's a very important prophecy. Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now that's not the first time Jerusalem has been under the sway of the Gentiles. It first happened under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., but the Maccabeans brought it back. Seventy A.D., it went to foreign dominion. It was completely destroyed. And the Jews have never had control of the city of Jerusalem until June of 1967. Once again, in June of 1967, after the Six-Day War, they got control of the holy city, the city of Jerusalem. And to this day, they maintain control over it. I think it's a revealing prediction, especially in light of what follows after this. Jerusalem will be trodden under the foot of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Jerusalem is under the control of the Jews, not the Gentiles any longer. I think the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. You say, what do you mean? I think that we're in an interesting period of time where the times of the Gentiles are over, but we are waiting for what the Bible calls the fullness of the Gentiles, Romans chapter 8. Blindness in part, Paul said, has happened unto Israel until the fullness, or literally, the full number of Gentiles have been brought in. Now you know what happened. The gospel first came to the Jews. They rejected it. The gospel went out to the Gentiles. The gospel has been preached throughout all the world. There is a full number of non-Jewish believers when that full number, I don't know what number that is. I don't know who the last believer is. But there is a full number. There is a last Gentile believer. And whatever that number is, when that last Gentile is saved, then the fullness of the Gentiles will be at its peak. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, it says, blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. When that last person, get saved. It might be you. You might be like that last holdout. You know, I often wonder when I look at a crowd, is there that one last person or last group of people that are just like, I'm not going to get, you might be the last one. If you are, please receive Christ so we can get out of here. Now what will happen when the full number of Gentiles has come in? Then God will again begin his program with the nation of Israel. The 70th week of Daniel, the 70-year tribulation period, that final period in Daniel chapter 9 that is unfulfilled will trip into gear. Sixty-nine periods of 70 weeks have already been fulfilled and have been ended with the crucifixion of Christ. There is a final seven-year period. It is for the Jews, for the city of Jerusalem, for the nation of Israel. And that will happen when this period of grace is ended, when the last Gentile believer comes in. The the times of the Gentiles, I believe, have ended. The fullness of the Gentiles are still going on. But that last person will receive Christ somewhere in the world. God will rapture up his church. Then he'll begin his program, the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's what the tribulation is called by Jeremiah. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon. Now he's speaking right before his coming. In the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. Literally, perplexity means no way out. People will reach a hopeless condition. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now there's a series of signs. They've always been around from the beginning of history, but they are intensifying and they are in more in number than ever before their beginning. The shadow is looming. And rather than being fearful, Jesus said, now you're going to hear about wars, commotions. Don't let it take you off guard. Don't be too worried about it. It's got to happen. Instead, rejoice, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back to redeem his people. When you see these things begin to take place men's hearts failing them for fear. And notice, the power of the heaven will be shaken. That's going to happen in the tribulation. When do, oh, we've covered the book of Revelation already, but have you ever uh, traveled west on the freeway, gone by that big hole out there in Arizona? It's a pretty big hole, isn't it? It was caused by a meteorite, 600 feet deep. It's a mile in diameter. Just the lip that comes up is 135 feet deep. It was caused by a rock from heaven that weighed about 132,000 pounds. That's the weight when it struck. That's a pretty big hole. Go look at it sometime if you're ever out that way. And imagine the heavens being shaken meteorite showers. The Bible talks about huge stones falling upon the earth during the tribulation period as punishment upon man for their blasphemy. The punishment of blasphemy was always stoning to death and God will fulfill that in the tribulation. Men will be stoned by God, rough stuff. The Bible tells us that Jesus made the heavens and the earth, Colossians chapter 1, speaking of the superiority of Christ. He is before all things, and by him all things are held together. What force is holding this universe together? What keeps these particles from hitting the earth? How come more of them don't? Oh, you could come up with all sorts of fancy explanations, but the real explanation is Jesus is holding it all together. One day he will release his grip. And judgment will fall upon the earth. Now, these events of the sun and the moon and the stars, you've got to read the book of Revelation to get it all in perspective, but these are the cataclysmic events during a period called the Great Tribulation. The Tribulation is seven years. The Great Tribulation is the last three and a half years. There is a time of relative peace. The Antichrist comes on the scene, makes a peace agreement with Israel... I uh, become sort of the dominating force in the world in the middle of that seven year period. A pact with Israel is broken as he sets up the abomination of desolation, which we have described in detail in the past. The last three and a half years is the roughest the great tribulation period, and these are the signs that will come right before Jesus coming in Revelation chapter nineteen with his angels and saints. But when these things begin to happen, look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, next week we'll look at the fig tree and uh, the admonition to watch and be ready and we'll try to see how close uh, we are. Will I set a date? No. I don't like setting dates. It, uh, now, people do set dates from time to time even though, and they use scriptures to do it. That's the odd thing. Even though the scripture plainly says, you, you know, stop it. Uh, no man knows the day of the hour. And uh, uh, then Jesus even said before he rose, and some people try to say, well, now really what that means is you'll know uh, the time, but you won't know the exact uh, hour. Listen, the disciples wonder, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? You know what Jesus said? It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. His coming, hit the rapture of the church, no one, I believe, will figure out. Why? So that you'll live in expectancy. You know, think of it. If you know exactly, oh, I figured it out, I calculated it. Jesus is coming back in a year and three days. Well, I'm going to really live it up for about a year. Those last three days I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to repent and get real serious. There would be people that would do that. You don't know the day or the hour. Jesus said, "'Watch and be ready, for the Son of Man comes in an hour that you think not.'" Now, there have been 88 reasons, and then 90 reasons, and then 92 reasons, and the numbers will grow. People have figured out when Jesus is coming. All I know is that he's coming, he's coming soon, he's coming for me, and then he will judge the earth. What a great time to be alive. know it would be great to be around when Jesus was around, but listen, to be around in these days when Jesus could come back for his church, that is the pinnacle of history. I can't wait. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for him? Jesus spoke in such graphic detail about things that happened in 70 A.D., and they happened exactly as he said. The prophets have spoken in graphic detail about the future, and so many of those things have occurred. That's why I love to study prophecy, because I see all that has happened, and I see what hasn't happened yet, and I think, okay, if all that has happened, you know, I think the rest of that's going to happen. I have trust in him. It causes me to get excited to lead as many to Christ as possible, to live for him, to be busy about his business. What other business counts? And so, Father, we do commit ourselves to you for your service, for your business. I pray that all of us would say with Jesus when he was a youth, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Lord, I pray that we would not live for our own kingdom and just think, well, I hope to live for myself and be included in his kingdom, but we would, as Jesus said, seek first and foremost beyond all else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that everything else would be added to us. Lord, I pray that your people would live in expectation of your coming, not saying, my Lord delays his coming, not trying to figure out exactly when, but simply to live every day to the fullest, knowing you could surprise us at any moment, that we would be found ready. And I pray, Lord, if people are not ready tonight, that they would get ready by getting right with God, by receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. Tonight if you're not ready for his coming, and it is coming, and I believe very soon, but you'd like to be included with the company of those who are ready. And tonight you're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ. That's what you must do. You must come to him in repentance if you're ready to make a change in your life you're ready to surrender to Jesus. And I mean surrender. You're ready to quit playing games. You're ready to make him Lord and Master. If you're ready to do that, would you raise your hand right now? Raise it up in the air and say, Skip, tonight I'm going to make that decision right now to get right with God. Raise it up. Let me see it so I can pray for you. Keep it up. Anybody? Raise it up in the air. God bless you. And you over here. Anybody else? Raise it up. God bless you. Right on, man. Right up front. A couple of you. If you're not sure that you're right with God, now's the time to make that choice. Slip your hand up. Father, we pray for these who have raised their hand that it would be more than just the decision of a moment, a temporary choice, that it would be a lifestyle that now follows. They would make that commitment to make Jesus Lord as well as Savior. Since you died for them, that they would live for you with your grace and your Spirit enabling them. In In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus' name, amen.